Welcome. I want you to call to mind a close friend, someone you love and know well, uh, someone you care deeply about and for whom you want the very best. Uh, who is that person? Picture that person in your mind. Now, let's say this person, this friend came to you and asked, if you could only give me one piece of advice, what would it be? Not about a particular situation or circumstance, but about my whole life. What do you think I need most to hear? I know you love me. I know you care about me. I know you want the very best for me. That's why I'm asking you and not someone else. What's the passage of scripture that you would put before me prophetically and say, this for, is for you right now? What is it that you think is standing in the way of my healing, of my flourishing? What do you wish for me? Uh, you'd probably be taken aback, uh, humbled, intimidated. Those are huge questions. That's a huge responsibility, but it's, it's a good question. Um, and it's maybe a responsibility that you deserve as a close friend. And so what would you say? Uh, if only we loved our friends like that, if only we trusted our friends like that and gave them permission and space to speak so boldly and openly and vulnerably into our lives. That's the heart behind my message this morning. Uh, believe it or not, admittedly, you didn't ask me that question. I'm just volunteering my thoughts. You are not giving me space. I just have it here this morning. But I deeply love Citizens Church. I deeply love each and every one of you. I want the best for citizens. I want the best for you. I want the best for the Church of San Francisco and the city of San Francisco. And after some years, I know citizens and I know you pretty well. Not exhaustively, not perfectly, but well enough to speak a word of encouragement and challenge uh, that deserves to be heard. And so given that, what is the one thing? that I would say to you and to us in this season, after all that we've been through in the last year, after all that I've observed and experienced about faith in San Francisco over the past six years, the passage that the Spirit brought to mind this week uh, to encourage us today is John 4, this story about the woman at the well, and specifically John 4:10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That's Jesus' word for us this morning. Uh, that's my word for us uh, this year, my prayer for us. In 2021, may Citizens Church and its members know the gift of God and who Jesus is when he speaks to us such that we would ask him and he would give us eternal life. And so let's pray and ask God to open up this vision in our hearts. Dear Father, I do love this church. I love the people here. Uh, San Francisco feels like home to me because of Citizens Church, because of this community. It feels possible, it feels doable, um, endurable because um, of these people. And I'm so thankful for them. It's also possible and uh, doable and endurable because of you, because you are in this people, you are in and among us. Uh, the spirit is here, the spirit of Christ, which unites us to you, our Father. 
And so I pray that we would experience that this morning and that we would experience that increasingly this year, no matter what happens, uh, no matter what comes, um, if the year is infinitely better than last year or it's the same or worse, Father, would you... uh, would you help Jesus's encouragement in John 4.10 be true of us today? Amen. This is such a beautiful story. Um, it reveals the character of Jesus in a profound way, in a sweet way, and it's worth a thousand sermons. And I encourage you to meditate on it this week, today or tomorrow. Take some time to just read it slowly and imagine yourself in the story, especially in the person of the Samaritan woman. Uh, In many ways, it's a perfect lead-in to Lent, and so Lent is this week. It begins on Ash Wednesday, Um, and Lent is traditionally a season of fasting where Christians choose to give up uh, some worldly comfort um, that is good in and of itself, but is But by giving it up, it increases our longing for Jesus and our our awareness of weakness. Um, I think after a year like this and and a season like this, why in the world would we fast fast from anything during a pandemic? It feels like we're already fasting. Uh, Give me all the creature comforts I can have. That's been my motto for 10 months. Um, Why would we fast? Um, We fast. Fast because of who Jesus is and because of what he offers in exchange for our fasting. Uh, what are we giving up? Nothing in comparison to the life Jesus gives. Uh, he asks her for a simple drink of water. That's all he asks from her. But then that opens up the opportunity for her to ask him for living water, eternal water, eternal life. And so John 4 is great motivation for Lent. It's also a perfect passage for Transfiguration Sunday. The Sunday before Ash Wednesday is Transfiguration Sunday, recalling the revelation of the glory of God. And in this story, we are in a way watching Jesus be transfigured in the mind and heart of the Samaritan woman. Uh, As we move through the story, the glory of Christ becomes more and more evident to her. Jesus is patiently revealing himself to her and through her to us. Uh, Most commentators will point out the progression and how the woman addresses Jesus. Uh, And so in verse 9, the woman, Jesus just starts out as a Jew. He's just a random guy and a guy from a hostile uh, ethnic community, hostile to her. In verse 11, he's still just a sir. But in verse 15, we begin to change where there's still some dismissiveness there. But she's asking, are you greater than Jacob? By verse 19, she knows something's up. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then in verse 26, with Jesus not just saying he's the Messiah, but in in Greek, he actually says, ego ami. He says, I am, I am the I am. He is Yahweh, God himself. And this is the first of John's seven I am statements. It's a big deal in the book of John, confirming Jesus' identity. And by the end, the woman is wondering if she agrees. And so she asks her village, could this be the Messiah in verse 29? There's this progression in this story as Jesus is being transfigured before her. Um, Hopefully this progression encourages you not to be discouraged by a lack of faith, by your own lack of faith, but to be persistent, to stick with Jesus and he will stick with you. Engage him and he will engage you. Jesus begins by lamenting, man, if you only knew who it is that's speaking to you, 
He says the same thing to us. If you only knew who I was, but that he doesn't leave in frustration. Jesus is not frustrated with you. He's patient. He hangs around until we get it. He stays with us and unveils to us who he is. And in the process, as Jesus is transfigured in our hearts and minds, in the process, we are transfigured, right? There is another transfiguration happening here in John 4. The woman is being changed. The more she talks with Jesus, the more she sticks with him, the more she knows who it is that is speaking to her. Uh, when, I, when our story begins, she's pretty prickly, right? Uh, in John 4, 9, the Samaritan woman says to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And I don't know if you're familiar with the cultural background. John's obviously pointing to that in the uh, parentheses. But the Samaritan woman has a lot going against her. Uh, she's a woman in a misogynistic world. Uh, she's a Samaritan, a heretic hated by the Jewish people, has been hated for hundreds of years. And if that weren't enough, she's a serial adulterer, uh, having been married five times and is now living with a man who is not her husband. So she's not even all that welcome in her own community. Uh, this woman is quite likely not loved by anyone. She is completely Alone, And a lot can be said about all this, but one thing's for certain. This woman is a fighter. Uh, she's a survivor, right? That's why she's gathering water in the heat of the day at noon. Uh, traditionally, women went in groups to gather water in the cool of the day. To, so at the beginning or the end of the day, um, who wants to do the hardest job? If you've ever tried to carry a few gallons of water, it is exhausting. And so people go in the morning, they go at night, but she's going at lunchtime. Um, Archaeologists have also discovered uh, that at the time near Sikar, this village, there were other water wells closer to the city than this one, uh, more accessible. But she's going in the middle of the day farther out to make sure she's not, she's alone and she's not bothered by anyone. Uh, She's a survivor, a fighter. She does what she has to do and she doesn't have time uh, for a judgmental Jewish man hanging around her watering hole. But Christ graciously keeps talking to her. He never gets his drink of water, by the way, according to the story. Um, She keeps talking to him. Uh, And after their first exchange, she's still a little gruff. Are you greater than Jacob? But she's being drawn in, and you can hear her being changed in the tone of her voice. Uh, It almost falls apart, uh, the conversation, when Jesus brings up her five divorces and adultery. Um, Honestly, like, who who of us would have stayed at that point? Like, how many of us would have shut the conversation down? It's been really nice, mister. Best be getting back. Don't want my sixth man to leave me, you know, like, and then just made her way out. Um, But she sticks with Jesus. Uh, One scholar notes, um, in the end, I admire this woman. Throughout the conversation with Jesus, she must choose whether to remain in the light with Jesus or walk away. In some respects, she dramatizes what we learned in John 3.20 at the end of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear that one's deeds will be exposed by the light. The light has exposed her, but she chooses to remain, and it must have been a decision of remarkable courage and will. The woman sticks with Jesus. She stays in the light, and the light changes her. 
I wonder where you are in this transfiguration process. Uh, Has Jesus been transfigured in your heart? Are you being transfigured by him? How do you receive Jesus' requests when he asks something of you, when he sits down next to you while you're working and asks for your attention? Is he an intruder on your survival? Is he annoying, asking you for a drink when you yourself are so exhausted and thirsty? Has he become a prophet in your life, a man of wisdom and insight, someone who can see into your soul? Or is he the Messiah? Has he become the great I am, the savior of the world? And although it's not explicit in John 4, it's evident when you read the story. I think we could also ask ourselves, in my time with Jesus, has he proven himself kind? Is he gentle? Is he safe? This woman had very little reason to trust anyone else, especially men. And yet she trusted Jesus. Do you trust Jesus? Do you know who he is and do you trust him? How you respond to Jesus, how you respond to his word, how you respond to his church has everything to do with who you believe he is and what you believe he's like. If only we knew who it is that is speaking to us, asking us questions. That's Jesus's wish for this woman. It's his wish for us. If only we knew who Jesus is when he's speaking. If only we knew what the gift of God is. And that's the next prayer here in John 4.10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So what is the gift of God? The woman starts out pretty confused. Uh, Like most of us at first, she doesn't understand what Jesus is offering her. And so the way the narrative goes, Jesus asks for a drink. She rebuffs him. Jesus says, if you only knew, um, uh, then he he would have given you living water. And in the Gospel of John, living water is one way that Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit. So in John 7, 37, he tells his disciples, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds to this an explanation. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So Jesus says, if you knew about God's gift, which is the Holy Spirit, and who it is that is speaking to you, which is the Messiah and the eternal Son of God, then you would ask him to give you eternal life, the Holy Spirit. But she doesn't know who Jesus is yet. And so when she replies, she's still thinking about physical water. John four eleven. the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Uh, Living water to her means fresh water. It's a term for like water in a stream that's active um, as opposed to like dead scummy water in a pond that you wouldn't want to drink. But Jesus, ever patient, he keeps at it. He pursues her. In verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You don't get it. This water is temporary. It won't satisfy you. And I'm offering water that never runs out. And again, she still doesn't get it, right? 
Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. We should have compassion on this woman's misunderstanding. Think about her life. Think about the challenges that she faces. This almost daily trek that she would have had to make. All alone in the middle of the day. It's exhausting and shameful. When the Samaritan woman begins to realize that this man, unlike the other men in her life, is kind, is good, is generous, and just maybe is powerful, magical, able to help her materially. This is a real need she has, a real pain point in her life. It would have brought her great relief, both physically and emotionally, to not have to come here anymore. But that's not the gift of God that Jesus wants her to know about. That's not her deepest need, which is why he pivots. He ignores her question and brings up the biggest source of personal anguish in her life. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. It's like a reality check for this woman. Not having to come draw water wouldn't actually solve much in this lady's life. Uh, She would still be in an unloving, uh, potentially oppressive relationship. She would still be a pariah in her community, excluded. She would still be estranged from her religious faith, not allowed to worship, not allowed to be brought in while she's in open adultery. And so even though Jesus is able, in theory, to answer her request to uh, make her never thirst again, it wouldn't do her any good. I wonder how many of my prayer requests uh, in a year that's been full of them actually represent a misreading of who Jesus is and what he offers me. And on top of that, a misreading of who I am and what I most need. I wonder how often when I read my Bible, when I hear the words of Jesus, I'm so fixated on my material and physical and emotional well-being that I miss what he is actually offering me. And so instead of answering my requests, he actually orchestrates my life so as to reveal what I truly need. And at this point in the conversation, she doesn't disengage, which is impressive, again, courageous of her. She doesn't shy away from the light, but she takes a hard left. Um, It's one of the funnier sort of dynamics to me in the Gospels where she just pivots um, hard. She brings up an unrelated theological dispute. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Uh, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Um, How often is that my response to conviction of sin, to exposure where I have a problem? And so I think, well, let me read a book. Uh, Let me read a book on something completely irrelevant to what I actually need. But Christ is so patient. And so he just lets her lead the conversation. He just follows her along. Jesus said to her, woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus answers her question directly. He doesn't evade the theological discussion. Uh, There's a substantive uh, truth, doctrinal statement here, and he doesn't shy away from hard truths either, right? He calls the Samaritans out for their willful ignorance. He doesn't um, say that it's a historical misunderstanding, a cultural misunderstanding. It is a um, error on their part. But look at how personal Jesus' doctrine is. Uh, She asks a very sterile question, right? Our father said this, but you say that Jerusalem is a place where people, generic people, ought to worship. But Jesus' response is not generic. It's centered on her, and it's very personal. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Will you worship the Father? You, this is for you. Worship is for you. You're estranged from God now, but the hour is coming when you will no longer be estranged. Later, he refers to God seeking true worshipers. And if you connect the dots, it's clear that Jesus is saying, God is seeking you, woman. He is seeking you. The invitation is for you to be a true worshiper who worships God in spirit and truth. Do you believe that God is seeking you to worship him? That he wants you and he wants your worship. He is seeking true worshipers, people who worship him in spirit and truth. He is seeking you. Did you know that? God is seeking after you, the sinner that you are, divorced five times and sleeping with the sixth guy, right? That's who he's after. Those are the kinds of people that he's looking for. And Jesus prophetically says that there is a future where you will be worshiping him. God wants you to be his worshiper. And believe it or not, it's deep down what you want for yourself too, You think that you want magic water, but you don't. Your thirst runs deeper than that. That's how Augustine's confessions open. There's this longing in every soul to worship God. As we read earlier, great are you, O Lord, and exceedingly worthy of praise. Your power is immense and your wisdom beyond reckoning. And so we long to praise you. But Augustine knows his heart's not big enough. And so later, very soon after this in the confessions, he writes, man, the house of my soul is too small for you to enter. Make it more spacious by your coming. It lies in ruins. Rebuild it. Some things are to be found there which will offend your gaze. I confess this to be so and know it well. But who will clean my house? To whom but yourself can I cry? Cleanse me of my hidden sins, O Lord. I think that's where the Samaritan woman is. After Christ tells her that God wants her to be his worshiper, there's this wistfulness in verse 25. 
The woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all these things. Man, that sounds really good, and I can't wait for it to happen, And um, but I need to wait because Christ isn't here. It's not for now. And so then when Jesus responds, I am the Messiah. I who speak to you am he. You don't have to wait. Now is the time for true worship. Now is the time to ask and receive the gift. Now that you know who I am and what the gift is. In the story, how do we know that she gets it? She's been confused for so long. How do we know that she finally understands who Jesus is and what the gift is? And it's seen in this beautiful little detail that John slips in, verse 28. It says, so the woman left her water jar. She left it. Her wants had changed, right? She wasn't thirsty anymore. She had what she needed now. And if you keep going, you'll notice what she said to the crowd, how baffling it is. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. This woman who used to do everything she could to avoid reminders of her history and shame now marches into town and celebrates the fact that a man saw everything and told her everything. She's not ashamed anymore. Because to have our history narrated by Jesus is freeing, it's good. Isn't that amazing? She's celebrating a man who exposed her sin. The only explanation for that is because of the grace she perceived in him. He showed her grace. He didn't hold it against her. And so what is the gift? The gift is eternal life through the Spirit, which includes everything entailed by the gospel of grace. It's forgiveness from sin. It's freedom from shame. It's adoption into God's family. It's justification and sanctification and glorification. It's eternal life. It's abundant life. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. It's the presence of God. It's the kingdom of God all resulting in true worship, worship in spirit and truth. I had an assignment recently for a class that I was taking, and the professor asked each of us to evaluate our church according to seven biblical qualities. And it was a great exercise um, Really, really encouraging. God has built such a good church. Um, The circumstances are hard right now, but the bones are so good. Um, These are the, these are six of the seven qualities and they're like very uh, dumb names in many ways. But um, I'm encouraged nonetheless, uh, based on the description. We are logocentric. Uh, meaning that we preach God's word and we preach Jesus, the incarnate word. Uh, We are pneumodynamic, meaning that we are fueled by the Holy Spirit. We are spirit-driven. He directs us and energizes us and sustains us. We give him credit for the work that he does. We are covenantal, 
meaning that our church is marked by promise-keeping to God and to one another. Uh, We are confessional, a church which emphasizes the historic faith, and so confessional in a long-term sense, um, but also confessional in a personal sense, hoping and praying and expecting and asking that each of us would personally confess Jesus as Lord. We are missional, believing our church is here on purpose to share the good news of Jesus. Uh, this last one is just so lame. It's, it's, um, I can hardly say it. It's kind of embarrassing. But uh, what he means by it is we are aware of our place and time. Uh, we are aware that we live in the already, not yet. Um, so we are waiting for the eschatological return of Jesus. We're looking forward. That's where our ultimate hope is. But at the same time, we're not ignorant of the place we are, the space and time that we exist in. This is six of the seven qualities, and we were supposed to uh, evaluate ourselves and then also identify areas of weakness, um, opportunities for growth. And one of the seven qualities I felt was weaker than the other, and that was doxological. Are we worshipful people? Is our church oriented toward the glory of God? And so not just on Sundays, um, not just in our liturgy, um, but in everything we do. Is it oriented toward the glory of God? And of course, there are ways that we are. Each of these is on a spectrum, right? And so we can point to areas where I think citizens is doxological, where I am doxological, in my pastoring. But I thought to myself, I I don't think anyone would say, uh, myself included, that's why I go to citizens, because they're committed to the glory of God, or because I'm committed to the glory of God. Even if I explained it to you, I think you'd go, oh, I, I get that, but I still don't think that's like fundamentally why I'm here. I'm here for wholeness and healing. I'm here for family and friendship. I'm here for doctrine and teaching. I'm here for their care for the poor. I'm here because I'm called to be here. It's just the way God's sovereignty, he led me to this group of people. And those are all fantastic reasons. They are doxological reasons. But I also want us to increasingly say that we're here for the glory of God. That no matter what happens, we're here to worship him and live lives of marked by true worship. We exist as an act of worship. In everything we do, we are worshiping. God is seeking true worshipers in San Francisco. And that is something that we can do no matter our circumstance. No matter our... Um, financial situation, no matter our numbers, no matter our activities, no matter whether we can meet on Zoom or meet in the park or meet in a building, it doesn't matter. None of that matters. We can be true worshipers now. People who worship in spirit and truth, meaning people who worship authentically and according to reality, truthfully, but also people who literally worship God the Father in the Holy Spirit by the word of truth, who is Jesus. Triune worship. That's what God is seeking from us. 
And the thing is, that's what we should want too. Like the Samaritan woman, I'm often so confused about what I want. I'm confused about what Jesus is offering me. I ask him for other things, thinking that that's the answer for me. What I should ask, though, and not just should, what I would ask if my heart only knew what was freely available to me, it would be the power to be a true worshiper of God. You can't be afraid when you're worshiping in spirit and truth. You can't be ashamed when you're worshiping in spirit and truth. You can't be lonely when you're worshiping in spirit and truth. You can't be discontent and frustrated and covetous. You can't be proud or hateful or lost when you're worshiping God. The thing we should all want, like the Samaritan woman wanted deep down, is to be worshipers. It's what we were made for. It's what we're happiest doing. How do we become worshipers? Once we know who Jesus is and the free gift he's offering. Jesus tells us how back in 410. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. How do you become a worshiper? How do you never thirst again? You ask and Jesus gives it to you. It's that simple. Frederick Bruner, uh, a great Uh, pastor, I think he's Episcopalian, he wrote about this verse. He says, asking in the Gospels is belief exhaling. It's a beautiful sentence. Asking in the Gospels is belief exhaling. In believing, we inhale the Gospel with trust. And in asking, we simply exhale this inward trust outward into the simplest freest possible request. Notice Jesus' verb is not beg or entreat or implore, but the simplest word available in the Greek language, ask. The cookies are put very low and close on the shelf. Asking is belief exhaling. And so what are we asking God for? What are you asking God for in this season? The content of our prayers reveal who we think Jesus is and what we think the gift of God is. Can we ask him to make us worshipers, to give us water that wells up to eternal life in our souls and overflows in worship? And the cool thing is that becoming true worshipers will make us natural evangelists. Our church will grow. Uh, I love this story because the Samaritan woman gives maybe the worst gospel presentation in the Bible. It's not good, right? In John 4, 29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And it's not good. She's left out a ton of things, but let us never avoid evangelism because we think we don't know what to say, right? She just speaks out of her experience of Jesus, And she brings her entire Samaritan village to Jesus. And verse 39 says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. Because of this gospel presentation, they came, saw Jesus, and believed in him. 
If you've been given eternal life, if you are a worshiper, then you have authority to talk about God. The best fuel for evangelism is worship. I love y'all so much. I love this church. I love this city. I believe in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe in Jesus. I believe in grace. I believe in the resurrection. Will you breathe in with me that truth? And will you exhale with me prayers of asking? Let's take Jesus at his word and ask him to make us into the true worshipers that God seeks. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful for your kindness and grace and patience with us. The same Jesus we see in John 4 is the Jesus who sits next to us. When we are preoccupied with surviving, when we are weighed down by shame, when we are actively oppressed and hurt by others, Jesus sits down and his wish for us is that we would know the gift of God available in the gospel and that we would know who it is that is speaking to them. And he wants us to know that so that it would open our mouths, it would free up our hearts to be able to ask him to give us eternal life, to make us worshipers. Father, this is something that we already do because you're merciful and kind to us and you've been working in our lives and heart, but it's something we can do more of and it's something that we can do right now. No matter what is our present, no matter what is our future, we can be true worshipers at Citizens in San Francisco in this moment and time. Father, would you make us true worshipers? That is what you are seeking. Thank you for grace. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for patience. We will need more of it from you and from each other. Thank you for Christ's death on the cross on our behalf, that the reason we're able to be worshipers is because we have been clothed in the righteousness of God. Thank you for the resurrection and the promise of eternal life. We believe these things, we inhale that truth, and we exhale praise to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.